thanks again for joining us today. And we'll try and make this not suck. Oh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's not going to suck. I'm sure it won't. It's always well. Fun, that's why we got you here. You. Yeah. So actually, we sh- we should level set on that front. Like, mm-hmm. I I would not tell you I'm remotely even an expert on this. So I'm hoping you actually unpack things, and then you know if I probe, continue to unpack because I think I'm not alone in saying that there's a lot of confusion out there about Web three. Yeah. Here's the good yes. news is that everyone keeps asking me what this what what the show we're going to record today is about, and I start to bring up Web three and stuff, and whatever answer I give them, they think is true because they know less than I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that's man. That's uh, you can drive a whole lot of capital flows by that kind of uh, lack of understanding. Welcome to Transpose, a podcast. In every episode, industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders, innovators, and creatives travel far into the future, unleashing disruption, and a little humor along the way. Welcome to Transpose. I'm Justin Dobb, and with me, as always, is fellow innovator, technologist, and futurist, Anju Ahuja. This week, we talk about Web3 and, yes, once again, the metaverse. Stay tuned. Today, we're excited to welcome an old friend to the podcast. It's fellow futurist, uh, Chris Arkenberg. Anju and I uh, have actually known Chris for years while we worked on a project really looking at the, the future of what tech would be useful for boomers as they age in place in their homes. Welcome, Chris. I will give you a little bit of your background for everybody. So Chris is currently at the Deloitte Center for Technology, Media, and Telecommunications. He provides insights and uh, market development for fast-moving technological change. His work covers technologies, competitive dynamics, and behaviors shaping media and entertainment, especially for streaming services, video games, and social media. And of course, the topic of today's conversation, Web3 protocols, metaverses, and the future of the internet. So welcome, Chris. Um, Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to reconnect with you both. Thanks for the introduction. I look forward to our conversation. So on our show, uh, we like to do a little more personal type of intro where we come up with a list of words we think describe our guests. So I'm going to give you your words. Great. Musician, gamer, surfer, world traveler, outdoor enthusiast, follower of trends, futurist, and something I don't claim for myself at this point, optimist. <laughs> I like it. I'm going to start us off by starting at the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like what I would call cocktail party level confusion about a deep technology, and that is happening in office spaces all around. Can you define for this audience what Web3 really is and what it is not? Yes. Yeah, so it's there's a bit of a caveat there because in recent years, prior to the current sort of hype cycle around this stuff, uh, Web3 was used in some ways to talk about the spatial web. So the way that sort of connectivity and sensing and sort of the semantic web and data were encircling us in our physical world. Um, now that 
definition kind of fits a little closer into what we now talk about as metaverse, uh, the sort of outward facing side of metaverse. So Web3 now, the way it's most commonly used uh, today is to refer to distributed technologies that are typically built around some flavor of a blockchain. Uh, so they are distributed. There are uh, tokens that can be um, minted by these blockchains, and those tokens have all sorts of interesting programmability and uses, and they can be stores of value. Um, and then you can build interesting kind of layers of automation around that, which you get to with decentralized autonomous organizations. So it's essentially blockchain tokens, and then this layer of um, of sort of next generation automation. But again, it's it's inherently designed to be uh, distributed and decentralized, uh, which is why people tend to get really excited about it for all sorts of different reasons from all sorts of different angles and industries. So, but again, as you can tell, it's hard to describe it in a short sort of phrase. <laughs> all right, I'm going to make you do it in a long sort of phrase. So, bear <laughs> with me. Um, so, you know, you mentioned all these technologies and you've hinted at this already, but like, what kinds of experiences does this new set of protocols enable for people? And, you know, why should anyone care? Yeah, so there's a couple layers. So obviously we've seen this cycle of cryptocurrency and that is, uh, has been exciting and captivating because it allows for smaller groups to, again, sort of mint their own tokens that have values um, and that groups can sort of organize around. We've seen this large explosion of different kinds of cryptocurrencies, and there's probably tens of thousands of them at this point. Uh, and what's been interesting about those is not just that they're speculative investment vehicles or that they're stores of value, um, but there's sort of these communities that form around them, which is to say when you when you purchase one of these um, tokens, you're literally purchasing membership into a sort of structured network. Um, this idea that networks can be people, but they can also be computers. And this is one of the really interesting things that tokens and crypto kind of enables. But then we've seen these sort of newer flavors. So, you know, the idea of currency is that it's fungible. It, you know, you can exchange it for anything. A dollar is good for anything, and the dollar can be traded for a dollar. With non-fungible tokens, NFTs, you get to um, a degree of uh, sort of exclusivity and scarcity, which is to say you can have one of these and only one of them, and, and that, that thing can only be possessed by one person at a time. So that's kind of created this other you know, use, play, use case that had a, a great hype cycle last year and is now sort of facing a bit of a winter, which is around the idea of kind of NFT collectibles. So you can have uh, a digital art piece that can now have actual unique value and ownership. Um, you can attach rights to that ownership. So say the original artist sells it to somebody uh, and then they sell it to another person. The original artist can still uh, get some remuneration for that. They can say retain um, a licensing right so they get a percentage every time it is resold. Uh, so it's created all sorts of excitement around ways that you can, again, sort of empower creators, uh, remove the intermediators that kind of intermediaries that manage um, transactions and always take a stake of it uh, and instead get them going directly to their you know, 
audience people. Um, so it's been very kind of exciting on that front. Um, those are kind of some of the, the interesting use cases or the ones that have been more immediate. But you can kind of map this stuff onto like supply chains. So say if you wanted to be able to track uh, an object across a supply chain, a, a component, for example, um, you might assign it a registry on a blockchain. And that every time it interacts with a point of transaction, you would get a little update that would be added to the blockchain for this unique item. And you could start to see how it travels across supply chains. So you can get all sorts of interesting things like provenance, like of goods, to validate that something actually came from where it said, or, or say that it's not a blood diamond, for example, that it is um, a vat-grown diamond, and you can trace that with full uh, reliability back to the source. So I'll kind of pause there, because there's the, the great thing about this, this stuff right now is it's, it is a Cambrian explosion of innovation across these yeah. fairly simple platforms. And so there's all sorts of fascinating experiments happening around this stuff. So I'm old enough to remember when all these same promises were made from the original uh, web, at least web 2.0, about decentralization and disintermediation. And uh, I realize that there's not the same kind of crypto foundation for, as you mentioned before, provenance and things like that. I guess I'm not necessarily bought into the fact that this will stay decentralized. There's always value in an authority enterprise or organization coming in and doing some validation. I don't know if you have a response to that. Yeah, it's uh, just the short response is it's, it's very likely it'll do a bit of both, right? Um, and what's maybe worth noting is from, you know, the emergence of blockchain in its current form in around 2008 or so around the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, and then the various sort of ways that that has been expanded, there's always been kind of almost an, an implicit goal within the architecture to decentralize things. So, you know, to your comment, there's this idea that, you know, the, the web was created, it was supposed to be this grand, you know, almost libertarian fantasy of, you know, everybody could do everything and it would radically shift power out to the masses. And in, in a lot of ways it has, but of course, you know, business is business. And by the time we got to sort of the web two era, it, that's kind of where so many things have been consolidated into a set of leading platforms and experiences that kind of aggregate so much of these capabilities because you get a lot of um, efficiency of scale. People don't want to have to navigate an entire web's worth of stuff. It's a lot easier if you have a couple buttons on your smartphone that you just go to naturally and that gets you the bulk of your experiences. So certainly that early web utopian vision shifted to become much more of kind of a, a classical, you know, commercial economic model with a lot of this um, aggregation and centralization. And then sort of in ticking along in the background is this, you know, blockchain Bitcoin provocation of, hey, imagine if we could break open these data stores, break open these houses of identity where, you know, it's like we have to log into our service and then the service has you know, ownership of everything we do after that. Um, and so these decentralized protocols were a very fancy and, and interesting application of mathematics and game theory to try and solve a bunch of problems about trust that you kind of just get when you're logging into um, you know, your favorite social media platform. But again, you give up all of your control and all of your data. Uh, and so it was an attempt to then create this idea of Web3 of, hey, we can you know, radically empower users, but also give them uh, a very, you know, cryptographically secure 
uh, set of protocols to um, kind of shift this sort of center of power. But again, you know, to your point, realistically, how this stuff plays out is it empowers a whole bunch of uh, individual actors, small groups, but then you also get, you know, there's tons of activity in FinServe, for example, around this, and they're mm-hmm. sort of leading a lot of the, the real implementation. And that is not to empower individuals and small groups, that's to further re-empower financial services. Uh, so you have lots of capital that's going to do what capital does, which is that it tends to invest in the new thing when it's safe enough and, you know, try to further its own um, sort of business. And so the the interesting thing, again, as I alluded to earlier, is that weird sort of explosion of, of innovation and the way that these decentralized protocols can empower groups uh, in really kind of fascinating ways that, you know, again, allow them to do so um, in in very automated ways, in very secure ways, in ways that embed incentives within within the protocols themselves so that these networks of people who may have never met each other, may have zero reason to trust each other, right. are actually all marching in lockstep towards shared goals that are articulated through the the actual structure of the network itself. Um, so we'll, we'll get a lot of both, I, I think. Um, we'll get some really interesting innovations that will directly try to challenge, say, again, the social networks, for example, or the banking system. Um, and then at the same time, those, those current leaders will also integrate this stuff and figure out how to put it to work for their own business. So actually, let's let's dig into some of that innovation because I was in New York two weeks ago, and bear with me for a minute. This is going to sound like a complete non sequitur. I'm in New York, and you know, want to go eat at a certain restaurant. I'm not going to say which one it was, and I found out that if I really want to get into that restaurant, and I didn't wait to buy a ticket on talk like three months in advance when the release dates come out, I should buy an NFT from front of house, and that will allow me to cut the queue. Have you guys heard about this front of house? I have not. No. Yeah. So you buy NFTs, like digital collectibles, digital <laughs> collectibles from various restaurants, and it allows you to be a member of a special, like like almost like a membership club. You're a okay. member of that restaurant now, and you get exclusive reservations, probably better tables, um, maybe access to the chef. I don't know. But it's become this way of sort of segmenting your market of people that are tech savvy and that want to put the money into an NFT and are comfortable you know, with that kind of mechanism to you know, skip the crowds. And I thought that was really an interesting innovation, but I'm thinking, you know, how much value are you really creating for users that way? Like how sustainable is mm-hmm. that really? There's a lot of interest in this kind of thing where it's almost like VIP packages and perks. Yep. Yeah. And it's on the one hand, a way to try to get closer to your customer. So, you know, you get a bit more information about them. You get direct access to them when they're a token holder. Um, It's a way to then kind of programmatically try to extend these kind of benefits. And then, of course, behind the scenes, there's like, you know, a bunch of kind of protocol infrastructure. And that does tend to beg that kind of question. It's like, well, why do you need blockchain? Yeah, exactly. exactly. You got you, you yeah, just, thank you. You just you know, front run my question. <laughs> and, and so that's I think a lot of what's happening. A lot of the volatility in the marketplace around Web3 is is this passage of like why do you need it? Like it's it's clearly amazing. It's clearly this, you know, incredible innovation that erupted into into our world. Um and yet 
and it's in that it's it is pretty unique in what it solves but it's not entirely clear what it's best at yet. Yeah, I feel um, like we're in the infancy stage of use cases that actually in, make sense yeah, and are sustainable. In, in terms of use cases, in terms of business models, and then in terms of ROI, you know, how much does it cost to maintain these things, keep them secure, extend them? We've seen all sorts of breaches. There's best practices that are still being understood. You know, so it, it, And this is an interesting aside. Um, the Bitcoin blockchain has never been compromised, and it's the oldest one we've got. It's been right. incredibly secure. Of course, it has a huge um, energy debt uh, for its yeah. proof-of-work protocol, but now Ethereum has just shifted to proof-of-stake, which is a much lower um, sort of energetic requirements. But all the, the breaches that we're seeing are in these sort of second and third order architectures. So bridges between blockchains, which is another, again, a, a very short aside, like the actual implementations are getting more and more complicated and involved where you might have three different blockchains that each yeah. issue different kinds of tokens. And one token might only work for the network itself. Another token might be for the network members. A third might be for a special class of members, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it's a lot of this just experimentation. There is something there. And there's been a, so far a fair amount of evidence of how to make it functional, but it's still not certain exactly where the real killer apps are going to be. It just sort of feels like this kind of tectonic moment that's shifting to, towards some kind of new order. Well, I feel like you're seeing a lot of technology looking for a problem as opposed to here's a problem, let's apply like an emerging technology. and you know, encourage adoption of a better solution. Uh, but okay, so so I'll shift gears a little bit. Chris, I was reading an article you wrote, which I enjoyed reading, and it's about Web3 in the metaverse. And you made a point that the metaverse is, quote, emerging, end quote, from our digital behaviors. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, definitely. And let me, you know, again, put some caveats in place here that there's a there's no real clear agreement on what, quote unquote, the metaverse is. Um, there is clearly a sort of moment where we're hurtling into what looks like a metaverse winter after this big kind of hype cycle. Right. It's even sort of going backwards a little bit to suggest that, well, you know, multiplayer video games are the metaverse, even though those have been around for a while and have been plenty successful without being called the metaverse. So it's difficult to pin this stuff down. What I was trying to do when I was sort of tasked with understanding this space was to give it a bit of benefit of the doubt that it's not solely something that is trying to be created by business interests or trying to create a new economy, um, that it does actually represent these changes. More and more of us spend more and more of our time engaged in some sort of digital representation of life. And maybe for a lot of people, that's social media. Right. You, know, you see interesting trends with younger generations around social media where, you know, anecdotally you hear about uh, kids that spend more time, you know, doing their makeup and getting dressed for their live streams than they do to go out in the real world. Uh, you see some interesting polls of, you know, 50% of people saying they spend more time Time online than they do, you know, in the physical world. Um, we see these trends around multiplayer immersive gaming that can bring together uh, potentially hundreds of millions of people in these game experiences. Now, 
not all together at once, but a hundred million of them in, you know, hundred person chunks and they socialize in there and they have friends they've never met in real life, but they recognize through their avatars. There's a economy of digital goods emerging around that where, you know, you're personalizing your avatar and, and trying to stand out. And now it's not just about running around and shooting at each other. It's, you know, bringing um, major stars in for concerts that are larger than life developed in these game worlds that can reach 12 million people at one time. Um, there's the franchises that are moving into these spaces, you know, all the big you know, action movie franchises that people love have large presences in game worlds as well. Right. And so it's these kind of behaviors that taken on their own do really seem to suggest this steady movement of more and more of our lives, our sort of social circles and our even our sense of self into digital places. Now, whether those will turn into, you know, we're all wearing VR headsets and going into, um, you know, a shared metaverse of a billion people, that to me feels very futuristic. And we can certainly unpack that if you like. But those are kind of, again, it was really just to say that, yeah, there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of capital. There's a lot of markets looking for markets. There's a lot of what's going to come after the smartphone now that that's kind of stabilizing. But at the same time, there are very real human behaviors that seem to be invoking this. It's interesting when I hear justification for needing, you know, kind of a blockchain foundation for Web3 and the metaverse. It's frequently stated that surrounding this idea of the metaverse is the concept of transferability or interoperability of digital goods, yep. like between or across platforms. But for content providers, there's a pretty great incentive to force users to kind of repurchase their virtual high tops every, you know, in every proprietary marketplace. So what do you think will compel platform providers to allow a more open stance on users' digital inventories? It's a great question. And I think as we noted before, in some ways, it's a solution you know, looking for a problem. So it may be, it may emerge from that social world. If, if our socialization becomes more and more embedded in, you know, the nearest metaverse proxy, these game worlds, uh, right now you have a lot of movement towards what's called cross play, which is to say, historically, if you were playing um, a specific video game on one console, you couldn't play against people who were playing the exact same game on another console or on a PC or from their smartphone, that these were all very separate worlds. But the the sort of consumer demand around these experiences has been provoking a lot more of this cross-play of sort of breaking down those walls, allowing these different hardware communities to come together. Uh, And part of this is this kind of old notion of content is king, that the, the content, the experiences themselves are now becoming sort of the largest factor that's shaping the business models around them. So if you get this cross play where you can move across different hardware platforms, well, what about people who want to move it across different games in this example? Um, and they want to do so. They've spent a bunch of money in one game world on goods. And, you know, they there's an outcry against like, well, I spent all this money and then I go to this other game by the same publisher and it's all evaporated. So yeah, maybe the publisher or maybe the third parties selling those goods would really like for people to buy them again and again and again. 
But history has tended to aggregate those things so that ownership is sort of a one-time. Like consumers really don't like to have to repurchase the same thing over and over. And so it, my guess is it would be more of a, a, a sort of consumer demand that there, there are these kind of trends to bring this stuff together. Um, now that could create potentially higher prices. If like, well, you want to buy it once, but now you can take it with you. It's no longer four ninety nine. It's now fifteen ninety nine. Right. You know, so you right. can see that kind of dynamic where the the value can accrue ultimately to the platform providers, provided the demand is really there. So so let's talk about the other side of that then, which is brands and IP. Um, Stephen Filing, the CMO of Linden Lab, which is the company behind Second Life and Tilia mm-hmm. Pay. By the way, I find Tilia Pay fascinating, and I think it might mm-hmm. actually be a game changer in the market. Uh, you know, we were chatting, we were part of a fireside chat at a marketing conference recently, and he and I got into this discussion about how do brands actually protect their IP in any kind of a metaverse, their metaverse, the general metaverse, if there's only one, which, you know, there's a lot of school of thought around there will be only one. But in a virtual world, how do you protect against piracy and digital counterfeiting and, you know, all the other hazards of having your IP out there? Yeah, this gets back to that promise of blockchains and Web3. Uh, Justin, you had talked about interoperability. And when I was really looking at this, the interoperability and, and transportability is one of these big promises of the metaverse. And Web3 protocols, you know, you kind of have to have a universe. You have to, a- anytime, you have to be able to look things up on like a universal registry, essentially. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes people talk about blockchains as like the state machine of the internet, which is to say you could have uh, an NFT being non-fungible and unique could be a personal identifier. It could be your identity uh, on this sort of Web3 internet. Uh, And then attached to that could be all the things that you purchased um, and all the things that you own. And that could enable this movement across these different um, services much more readily. But that that could solve for this idea of um, identity management and ownership. Uh, And with these blockchains, you kind of get to do that in ways that are potentially very secure uh, and quite lightweight and robust. Um, well, so. well uh, I guess I'm going to jump in there. So when you say lightweight and robust, as soon as you start talking about this this token having affixed to it, not just the identity, but all of the inventory that is associated with that identity, that's not very lightweight. Uh, so if it's in terms of the simple code, it's pretty lightweight. In terms of having a text, essentially, you know, a, um, a log of information. That's pretty lightweight. One of the things we see is that the actual assets tend to live elsewhere. So blockchains aren't typically very good for storing things that are are large. So say like um, a 3D model, for example, or um, a large video. So what tends to happen these days is you get pointers where, you know, the identity is on the blockchain, the registry is on the blockchain. And in terms of text, that's all pretty lightweight. And even in terms of the code, it's pretty lightweight. But then they point to a typical HTML server that maybe has some degree of security on it. And that's where your, you know, $150,000 JPEG NFT lives. And so you've seen a lot of these breaches where people are, are exploiting that. So, so in some ways, you're, you're, you're right, Justin, and, the, and it tugs at, you know, another sort of emerging um, technology around this, which is like 
peer-to-peer storage systems that themselves are cryptographically yep. yeah. secure and are you know very securely bridged into blockchains so that you know these also become these distributed stores very much like the you know the old school peer-to-peer um, music sharing sites yeah i was thinking limewire you know, as you were yeah yeah and, yeah and you know on those it wasn't that a copy of the song was everywhere it was that the song itself was chunked into all sorts of little bits and then those were copied everywhere um, and you reassembled them through some you know little bit of code that tells you how to do that so then it, it kind of tugs at you know this other element again in terms of like what's lightweight and what's heavyweight and that's that kind of computational energetic load and Again, that historically was part of this kind of Bitcoin-based um, proof of work where you just get a ton of people around the world to you know, leverage a, a bunch of computation to try and compute the hash rate and solve the latest block and write it into code. Uh, and you get this like real scalar effect of energy consumption. But with proof of stake, you have these sort of like approved networks of people that do the the validation of a new a new block or, or a new activity on that, uh, and so you can it can become much smaller. Of course, that tugs back a little bit at the centralized versus yeah, decentralized. Exactly. And like telecoms have been playing with this, where you can have a consortium of five telecoms that run their own proof of stake right. uh, network to reconcile um, cross carrier payments at the end of the day, for example. But it's only five you know companies that that are part of that and they all trust each other already. So part of that kind of evolution of Ethereum that we just kind of went through is this big like inhale and pause to see, okay, is this going to radically shift that energetic footprint while still enabling this explosion of innovation around it? You know, it's what's interesting to me is that so we talk about this as if every user is going to be able to manage their token collection somehow. (laughs) You know, I have a lot of people in my life who can't manage a password manager, let alone yep. any yep. number of passwords, which is a far less complex yep. platform. Um, I'll put this out there. I want this to be the future. I think, you know, the security of the internet really depends on this kind of level of security. But yep. uh, decentralization uh, puts onus on people who are potentially not qualified. I, you know, I don't know either of you really. I don't know. Have you thought about this? I Yes. I mean, I this is a huge barrier to adoption and why a lot of this stuff happens in pretty niche little networks. Um, I've, you know, I've got my crypto wallet. I've got some positions on a few cryptocurrencies. Um, it it was a lot of work. And I'm, yep. I'm fairly technically savvy. I've been in, in the tech sector, you know, well, most of my life. It was a lot of work to get it even functional enough. Never mind all the things I still don't understand about it. And I should again caveat this whole conversation. Like I I'm reading I'm reading books. I'm reading like college books to try and understand this stuff. And it is still very challenging. So really, as long as people users are required to understand all of this stuff, uh, adoption is going to be very limited. It's only when these protocols truly become under the hood. And it really doesn't matter to the end user. What matters to the end user is the outcome, the results, uh, and the lack of friction. Uh, And so once these things, again, start to become just the way things are done, and they don't require the user to understand whether or not it's blockchain or not, that's when it'll really start to take hold. 
Yeah, I think the the whole work for your relative return on on that investment is a big issue because if you think about it, you still have to manage your portfolio of assets the same way, right? You might have a little bit of crypto, but you're probably also going to have some real estate. You're going to have some cash lying around. You're going to have, you know, whatever other assets you're interested in diversifying with. If there isn't sort of a centralized place where all of this can be managed by a user with a trusted party or trusted parties, I don't how do you get wide-scale adoption? We're getting right back into my original yeah. question. Like this was the promise of the first web. It is this right. promise now. And 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 we as we keep talking, we're like, well, of course you need, you know, someone to help people manage this, which suddenly which, becomes and then a I'm centralized like, you need regulators. <laughs> you probably need regulators. And I hate saying that, but it's like, you know, a decentralized world does not mean it's like anarchy or it's a free-for-all. It does mean that there is some level of trust. I mean, you know, this can't be like the burning man of technology <laughs> for the future. There has to be something much more substantive in place that are not necessarily guardrails, but are uh, well, first of all, there are ramps to onboard users. You need that. And then secondly, I do think you need some level of organization, right? Now, it can be organization that emerges organically over time, but I don't know that that's the way we're seeing things because stuff is emerging in pockets of activity. And sometimes those pockets of activity end up destroying value in another area. Yeah. You know, you, you need to have guardrails at some point. Um, and typically, you know, the way the regulatory uh, sort of dynamic goes in this platform era, the technologies move really quickly. And oftentimes the the bleeding edge are the only ones that really understand it. Right. And the, it takes regula- regulators a while to, to kind of wrap their heads around it. And oftentimes it takes disruption to provoke a regulatory response, right? Like, the, like you have to have problems come and then the regulators kind of perk up and they say, okay, let's try to figure out how to understand this and what kind of guardrails we can put in, in place. And I kind of drew out the, the sort of regulatory um, view specifically, yeah, to highlight back to that, you know, one of those core provocations of Web3, which is just, as you notice, know, is this idea of smart contracts. And tokens, in a way, you can just think of them as a bundle right. of rights that, that are immutable and that execute. And within that, you very much establish Again, immutable protocols or protocols that require voting majority based on you know, people who actually have stake. Again, their token owners, their ID is stamped into that. It's stamped into the shared blockchain. And so, again, on the one hand, all of this stuff is inherently very controlled, I should say. Not necessarily regulated, but very controlled. But you know, to, to both your points, it is not always clear, particularly right now, what those rule sets are. And different people in different parts of a given blockchain network with different yep. kinds of tokens may themselves have different rule sets that they're beholden to. And so there is a bit of a black box element. And this is, again, to kind of tug at this larger regulatory response. This is why people pay attention to these things or one of the the many reasons people pay attention to these things because it does radically empower small groups 
And that, that very much has been an arc of the internet age. And that's a good thing. It can also be modestly dangerous, but or maybe not so modestly, but it is a good thing to some extent. It does decentralize a lot of capabilities for people, but at the same time, it creates a, a very fragmented and potentially highly opaque landscape of decentralized capabilities. Again, it's this hyper-empowerment of small actors. Yeah, I mean, I guess I like to think about technologies that are in this space at this stage as great enablers of innovation. And I think when I try to think about all the things that have to happen for these to be enablers of really great disruptive innovations, it's not obvious to me who is the most advantaged in making that happen and what that use case looks like, which is a comment that I know we were kind of circling around earlier. But is that something you guys struggle with too when you think about all of this? Yeah, I think, again, because this these are protocols, right? So it's these are things that are pretty far down the stack in a lot of ways. And because of that, there's a wide range of potential uses for them that, you know, you build on top of them um, to eventually get to use cases and sort of real world um, scenarios. Well, so, so let's talk about that then. You're a telco, right? Or, uh, you know, some kind of a carrier. Like, what should you be thinking about if you're in one of those companies without talking about a specific company? I mean, the stuff I tend to get back to again and again is uh, identity management, for example. That um, right now, uh, there's no centralized, fully secure, but safe and pseudo-anonymous store of identity on on the internet. Now that's actually exciting. We talk about that a lot at the <laughs> office, and it is it is it's yep. confounding that it's taken this long. But yes, totally agree. Well, because so many companies have aggregated their business models, whether they're telecoms or um, you know, again, uh, media entertainment, uh, any sort of consumer-facing platforms and, and lots of enterprise groups, they've, they've built their business models around that identity of you are my customer or my um, you know, partner, and you use my platform to log in and, and attest your identity. And then, then the platform itself has control over all the data that accrues around that identity. So there have been a lot of incentives so far to, to maintain that sort of yeah. balkanized identity. And, and even then we see that it's, you know, there's a handful of hyperscale yep. platforms that kind of have won that, that, you know, there's three or four logins you can use all right. over the internet. And I think this is really the sort of decentralization provocation that that will win out over time is this idea of, you know what, we need a universal store of identity. It needs to be pseudo anonymous, which means like, you know, you can't be found, but if, if it really comes down to it, it can be traced back to every single user. As, as an aside, like crypto and tokens is fascinating. When you see these yeah. breaches, you see a user's identity as, you know, they transferred 250 million dollars worth of tokens out of a you know a breach into this other account and then it went here and then it went to this account and then it went to this id and it's absolutely transparent until you try to break that id itself it is extremely difficult to figure out who the real person is you can do there's all sorts of interesting data science around how you can get to that but the id itself is anonymous but visible which again that's a big aside but that does seem to be like the thing that could fix a lot of the internet. I mean, you get into things like misinformation and the provenance of information in 
hyperscale social networks. Like you, you can start to potentially reveal a lot of things. Yeah, you know, you were maybe hinting at this, but in the Neil Stephenson book, Fall, Dodge and Hell, right? He kind of implies that there's this future where there there is no sign-on. It's that there's enough pervasive AI in the world that is computing who this entity probably is at any given point in time. It knows you. Yeah. Right. And any space and any mm-hmm. transaction just from all the contextual data. And I think that's what kind of you're hinting at with, um, we may not be able to say like, there's no entry that says this is Chris Arkenberg's NFT, but all the contextual data around it, any data, data scientist could eventually get to the point of, yes, yeah, is, you know, we're within reason, relatively sure this is Chris Arkenberg's NFT. And many people may be inherently incentivized to be forthcoming with that because you can also credentialize yourself on these. So it, it could know, like, here's where you graduated. Here's the degrees you have. Here's all the awards you've had. Here's, you know, the, the various jobs you've had. You know, there's, there's sometimes value in being able to state that and state it in a way that is irrefutable. Um, property ownership, so you know, getting rid of escrows. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. absolutely. You know, and like, why do you need an escrow? Why do they need to take you know a big percentage of the sale when really all you need to do is establish immutable trust between two entities? Yeah, title insurance companies should be a little wary of blockchain at this point. Agreed. We won't say which title insurance companies. <laughs> <laughs> the subject of identity is is truly fascinating. I mean, we've gotten into philosophical debates at the office about whether or not you should really only have one, right? You know, in, in the lab, like, do you need to have more than one identity? And I would argue, well, we've always assumed that there's just one identity per person, but is that really the unit that matters? When I'm crime fighting, I need a different identity. But so you, you get my point though, right? People have masks and maybe- They have avatars. Maybe on the back end, Yeah. And, and maybe you want to allow them to have those, those masks and avatars with lots of separation, but underneath it, for various reasons, you know, they'll all be able to be reintegrated into a single source of truth. I mean, here's a really dumb example, but like you work for the CIA. If we have all that AI around us where it's very obvious who you are, where you are, or all the things you've done, can you really be effective if you're a spy? Well, that'll be another issue. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, and these are all, you know, it's a cat and mouse game when, it, when you get into stuff like that. Where there's, then there's all the, the ways to obfuscate uh, and to misdirect. And so what, what are the, the technologies or the uses of these technologies that enable you to create that cloud of, you know, un, unknowability? Well, so there you get into an issue of equity, right? The only people that will be able to obfuscate, that will be able to take advantage of those technologies are the ones that are wealthy and smart enough to have them to have access to them. They'll have to be trained in them. And that's usually usually the case until these things reach enough scale that they're able to drive down the prices. Um, you tend to see this over time with most tools and technologies that most, most things, not all things by any means, but most things tend to get cheaper over time so that more people can get access to them. But I mean, that's, that's another subtext of all this, right? It's like, we talk about it right now in, in the very early innings and, and what's this going to look like when you've had a generation or two that grew up with these technologies. I mean, that's a, a big thing I focus on for my media entertainment work is really the um, emerging behaviors and characteristics of digital natives, of, of Gen Z, of Gen Alpha, um, of populations that have just grown up with 
hyper-connectivity, on-demand media, you know, non-local virtual socialization. Um, what does that mean for the future of media entertainment, where so much of the conversation right now is, say, around SVOD, which is really yeah. just TV. It's, it's, it's last century, but on-demand. Yeah. Um, whereas you look at the ways that you know, video games, for example, or social networks that are building creator economies around short-form you know, video, like these are truly 21st century aggregations of, of like technologies and behaviors. And what does it mean when you have like entire populations that are growing up swimming in those waters? Okay, then I'm, you, you've, you've led me into a question that I've been uh, dying to, to throw out there. So as a futurist, right, walk us through a typical user's day in the, you know, 10 years from now. And we realize that <laughs> none of us know what 10 years from now looks like. But what is their day as they encounter Web3, Metaverse, kind of both in their professional and personal lives? Justin, I want to give you a fun answer to that. And like, if I had an assignment, I would go there. I, I want to, I want to address that though, because like, I, I, I'm not sure I think of myself as a futurist anymore. Oh, interesting. I have seen the future unfolding so quickly into our current time frame that I think my real power band is as a systems analyst in a, in a as somebody who's trying to understand complexity because it is it is moving so quickly it is unfolding so rapidly uh, and the counterpoint to that is that then you have this like really short horizon that when you have so much complexity so much turbulence I mean if we ever expanded this conversation into like macroeconomics and geopolitics like the event horizon of predictability is super close <laughs> totally yep Right. So I could speculate, yeah. I could paint you a fun narrative picture, but it'd be pure activism, right? <laughs> it would be futurism in what I'm like hoping you will think about or what I you know, wish would come to pass or what I fear would come to pass. And that's, that's also where I've arrived in my arc as through futurism and strategic foresight is that, you know, the value is always to the present in articulating any sense of the future. And it is because you want to provoke some sort of change or uh, decision point now based on models or paintings of possible futures. That is, it is very much an activist approach, whether you're trying to encourage adoption of a business model or encourage people to avoid, you know, the next wave of nuclear annihilation, um, that it is about <laughs> provoking the present. So, so let's actually, so what is a possible future that you think is sort of underrated right now? That it's under discussed with respect to Web three and metaverse. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll try to answer this without revealing too much of my personal sort of opinions about things. But personal opinions are are welcome. Yes, <laughs> they are. But you know, I also am, am currently <laughs> employed and so on. Um, so again, I I come back to identity and the provenance of information and the future that I think is being overlooked around all of this stuff with web three is again, what it could potentially do for solving these huge problems we have with misinformation, disinformation, and the programmable world that we've created, not the, not the programmable world, the programmable audience. And in a lot of ways, the 
they did not intend this, right? The, the social media platforms, but their ad models and the way they implemented um, their mechanisms mm-hmm. for engagement and for, for ad placement and targeting have been hijacked and leveraged by all sorts of unsavory elements that are trying to use that stuff to hone in on people who can be easily programmed in a particular way, whether that's, you know, to buy something or to vote in a certain way or to hate their neighbor or whatever. And all of that stuff has been radically exploited. And that's really what the platforms are are wrestling with right now is how to rein that in. Do Do you do it with massive algorithms? It's like, well, that's hugely difficult and expensive. Do you do it with huge armies of moderators? Well, that's even more expensive and they burn out because it's so awful when you like get that fire hose of humanity. Um, so my sort of future that I think is still below the radar that is a hopeful provocation, provocation of Web3 is that through creating this immutable decentralized structure for identity um, and creating provenance of everything that gets put on the internet, that we will be able to solve for a bunch of those problems and return to a much more trusted and trustful information landscape rather than this um, you know, wild west of truthiness and and. I shouting. like that. That's very optimistic and almost romantic about the state of civilization. <laughs> I I honestly feel like when you just unpack that, what I actually visualized in my head was okay. So you're going to have a set of people who actually understand how all of this stuff works and are going to choose to want to hide more from one another because they won't want to be part of certain things. And then you're going to have a group of people who are just going to be totally hyper opt-in, leverage the technology for all the things that they can. You know, it's not haves and have nots. Well, no, that's, I, I totally feel you. And, and that's why I hesitated to provide a future of how, how people will behave in 10 years, because you always have Luddites, for example, you always have these countervailing trends. Uh, some of the best science fiction are the ones that not are not building these, you know, uh, shiny space futures, but show how things change at such different rates. And you have parts of the old, you have parts of the new, and depending on where you are, you have different mixes of those things. So, no, that's definitely true. And and I think what I was trying to get at in there is it, the more you actively engage with technologies where you're not actually leveraging the technology for a certain outcome for yourself, the more it's possible you are manipulated by somebody else who is using that technology to get a certain outcome from you. Yeah. And and that's why I think you're going to have this world of not the haves and the have nots, but people that are either active users that are creating outcomes and people that are having outcomes happen to them without them even knowing. And and it was ever thus in <laughs> yeah. a lot of ways, right? With 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 everything. There are always the hyper empowered groups and there are always the kind of different tiers of um of the masses that have access to these things. Um, and at the same time, like we're all, we're caught in such a weird moment. It's like, if you think about it, you know, I remember, you know, whatever, 1994, I was in college and we just shifted from pine, which was a, like a DOS way to have an internet to mosaic, yeah. which was yep. the first browser. That was 1995. I was so there. it's been 27 <laughs> years, you know, which, even in our lives, 27 years is not a lot in terms of human society. It's, it's a blink and we have radically 
change the world that we've lived in by creating this internet and everything that it's connected to. So, so much of what we're dealing with, in my opinion, is the disruption and the chaos thrown off by that radical set of innovations that have rapidly accelerated yep. everything. And so we're, we're reckoning with our own immaturity and, and to your, your kind of point there right now, a lot of people are infantile in their understanding of these things, but using it and engaged. And we're all slowly trying to gain some maturity around it so that we can kind of better sense when we're being manipulated or have better maps for navigating this territory. That's, that's so new. I mean, when I, when I stand back from this, this is the, the most radical disruption uh, since the printing press. Well, I definitely, I can see that. And actually, so here's a question I have for you guys. And the answer cannot be Wong Kar Wai or 2046. When do you think the user actually becomes the endpoint and not their devices? That's a great question. And, and, you know, we were talking about, you know, ways AI can sort of understand who's on the network. Uh, certainly some companies, some hardware companies are, you know, using biometrics for that sort of thing. Um, and so when, they, when we get invoke that idea of spatial computing, for example, of, you know, if the interface is slowly falling away and dematerializing, and instead we just live within sort of a space that senses us and understands us in some you know, capacity, I think we're already maybe moving into that space a bit. Yeah. The, the, Which means then your identity does get assigned to you. Yeah, ultimately, I think so. You have to. That's how you move, you know, yeah. between devices, so to speak. And that's a very crude way to put it. And yeah. between experiences and between, you know, accessing different things in the real world as well as the digital world. And, you know, how are all the ways that this sensing infrastructure is emerging around us beyond just the smartphones and the things we have in our homes? Yeah. And the thing that I like about that is I think it makes for a much more robust idea of what the network actually is in the future. I always go back in my head to when people were trying to predict what the future was going to look like in the 60s, right? They were, they were damn sure that we would have video phones. Um, mm -hmm. And <laughs> as we've gotten more and more technology that has made that future they envisioned not only possible, but ubiquitous, uh, most everyone I know texts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and part of that, I think, is these behaviors emerge not from the elite or the enterprise, or any kind of group that has all the means, they emerge from the much larger group that has to eke out some kind of behavior from what they can afford or what they have access to. And those things kind of permeate up. I'm curious, you know, as we're looking at the metaverse, right, this grand vision that we're going to have all these constructed worlds, and, and I, I kind of lean down the road that is probably more like Alexa than it is generating all these 3D images. It's going to be something ubiquitous and information flowing, you know, without a UI. Yeah. Very lightweight information overlays on everything. And in some cases, tying them together, you know, where you're now seeing um, generative AI that responds to voice commands to build oh, 3D yeah. Very spaces. Cool. So you just mm -hmm. talk, talk to it. Um, Justin, I, I have a similar disposition. You know, my, my education and intellectual disposition is, is really in biology, in animal behaviors, uh, and in those kind of core motivational elements that like, yeah, there's companies that are trying to create markets all over the place. But at the end of the day, the stuff that really works is the stuff that responds directly to our needs as beings as animals as uh you know 
social groups, um, social networks, like make absolute sense in that context. It is just, you know, empowering us to connect and to communicate and to collaborate, which is so fundamental to being human. Yeah. And I think this is where I was trying to get to with the whole, the, the loneliness or people trying to isolate or basically stay um, hidden. I, I think you're going to have portions of the world that won't have access to the technologies at the same time as other parts of the world. So you'll have parts mm-hmm. of the world that are propelled into this future very rapidly, right? And, and mm-hmm. I think we're we're not even at the high acceleration rate yet. It's accelerating, but you know it can get much faster. Uh, and then you're going to have a portion of the world that is just kind of left behind for a good, mm-hmm. effectively, like a generation, right? And then you're going to have a portion of the world that then splinters off into those that know how to make use of all of these advancements and those that are completely want to go off the grid with it. So yeah. it, it almost feels like this is going to fragment humanity and society in ways that Web 2.0 didn't. Web 2.0 is something that, you know, if you had access to the tools, you could find the stuff, right? You might do different things. You might, some people might be in the dark web, right? There's always going to be like different stuff going on. But this to me seems like it's, it's potentially going to unleash something that is a lot more fragmented where you might have democratization of certain things, but you might also have monopolies of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, it, it's super fascinating and, and in some ways, you know, in the seed of one are the, the sprouts of the next. So, you know, Web 2, in a way, did aggregate everybody and bring them together onto these, you know, handful of dominant social yep. platforms. And yet in doing so, they radically fragmented our our societies, right? Because now instead of knowing the people who are geographically close enough oh, to I see you, what you're saying. Yeah. And maybe okay. and, and maybe getting your news through a handful of channels that all have the same view on the world, now people can organize themselves remotely, non-locally, across the world into groups and affinity networks. Um, there is no single source of truth. There are no 13 channels or three news outlets. There is now um, you know, anybody can publish from anywhere. Anybody can build a profile and a network and an audience around them. And so we already, from that Web 2 phase, unleashed this huge fragmentation of ground truth. Nobody agrees on anything because everybody sees the world from the, the lens of their own well, social Well, and I think of that as more social media as opposed to Web 2.0. But maybe what you're saying is that certainly it's not like, like e-commerce well whatever, i have a but, more dystopian yeah. nightmare for you to consider is that oh, uh, <laughs> while there were actors pumping out single viewpoint propaganda uh, we can have ai now creating individualized propaganda for people uh one off one at a time yep i know it's, it's literally like you know you know my fears so you know you know my fears you know my psychology it's easy to be tortured and and well not only that. that i i know what i want you to do and we're just gonna yeah this gets back to my manipulation argument yes, yes it does <laughs> so and, and it's not even the technology necessarily manipulating you. you can't blame the technology it's going to be the people that have the power to use that technology in that way and until users understand that can happen to you they cannot protect themselves and even if they do understand it it's really hard yeah, exactly. Hence the need to be hidden, which is, by the way, this is not where I'm going. I'm just saying I can see a world where it plays out this way. 
And, and Anju, to your point on on Web three, yeah, I mean, you can see the the gaps that happen from technologies moving so quickly that fragment people. Um, the protocols themselves that can potentially create hyper empowered networks of groups that are geographically separated have no reason to trust each other, but can all be brought together towards shared goals that are both part of their their social network, but also the computational structure of the you know the blockchain network and the token economy that sits on top of it so you you can get i i I think you're right i think that this is we're just early in the curve of this grand shift for human civilization on so many levels whether it's you know these kind of technologies that are building on top of each other and, and, you know, um, accelerating on these logarithmic curves uh, or the way that that is reshaping globalization and reshaping capital allocation and enabling uh, all of the post-World War II um, structures of nation states to become unraveled and seized. And And it does really look like we're in some radical shift of kind of rebuilding a lot of the fundaments of, you know, Western civilization. Well, yeah, I think, I think we're going to need to not only rethink supply chain, per your point, um, we're also going to rethink market making because market making in this future yeah. world does not happen the way that it's historically happened. And that's a good thing because it makes assets maybe more fungible. Um, it's a complicated thing if you don't know how to think about your world that way. And by the way, I'm not bearish on on Web3. I'm actually very excited about all of this and setting the metaverse aside and you know how that sort of moves forward, which I think of the metaverse as more or less, we're on a continuum. But I think with Web3, there's really the potential to completely redefine so many different things. And that's why I would love it if there was a thoughtful sort of set of efforts about it that were more integrated as opposed to experimentation popping up here and there. And maybe that's just what's going to happen until there are these players in the middle that begin to sort it all out. Yeah. Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this whole bad boy up. All right. Are you ready? <laughs> all right. Yes. Good, good. Yeah. You're going to have to edit a lot. <laughs> the more we talk about this, the more I find myself confounded, but go ahead keep going. <laughs> so to get to a happy place with Web3, and I'll throw the metaverse in for good measure. (laughs) What isn't being addressed by players that needs to be resolved in order to to pull this technology forward on the adoption curve in a way that's positive for for everyone? Um, It's a great, great question. On the Web3 side, it does feel like part of it is getting it under the hood again. Um, so FinServe, I, we mentioned, you know, financial services is, is kind of advancing this a lot. Um, enterprise. So, you know, moving it into the back end as a way to just find greater efficiency, higher performance, you know, um, better, you know, lower your costs. Um, so I think that's going to be a, a big part of that adoption and the slower paced transformation, your kind of standard digital transformation of a lot of the ways that things get done. That will then enable a bunch of new business models to emerge on top of it just by rejiggering the architectures behind it. Because at the end of the day, you know, the code is always going to dictate how much you can do on the front end. And so that to me, I think is a big part of that. In terms of metaverse, that one I have a harder time answering. We all do. Yeah, because again, in some ways it's here, in some ways it's not going to be here anytime soon. If you anchor it to 
hardware advances like AR and VR, well, then those could take quite some time to be you know, highly adopted um, if you anchor it to multiplayer. So I think for me, let, let me pause on that. Um, I think one of the ways that Metaverse could evolve and add more near-term value, the folks that are in that space, um, is to honestly focus on video games and cloud gaming uh, and build out the vision of cloud gaming, which is like now you can leverage the computational capabilities of the cloud, create immersive game worlds that are unlike anything we've ever seen in their scope and realism, and still be able to embed very compelling narratives and gameplay mechanics in those spaces, but potentially invite in thousands of people to participate in those spaces at once. Um, I think that would really start to establish what we mean. And then at the same time, really letting go of this idea of the one metaverse to bring everything together. That, in my opinion, is a 25 to 30 year undertaking, if that. Hmm. Damn right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot to consider there. So what do you think on that, Anju? What do people need to resolve to get this moving? I I think it goes back to the thing that lately I've been obsessed about, which is the concept of identity and the concept of whether it gets assigned, whether you only have one, whether you should only have one, how should it be regulated? Should you be able to like reset your identity, you know, periodically? There's a lot of questions for me that... You know, I, I don't assume that it's going to be the analog world as now the Web3 world. So I don't assume that it's as simple as there's a passport and there are nation states that agree how to treat your passport, right? I, I don't know that things have to evolve that way. But the struggle that I'm having is I haven't come up with a vision for what I think it should look like yet because I'm still using the term should, right? And I need to take that out. I, I shouldn't want to be prescriptive. And whenever I find myself saying it should be this way, I have to ask myself, well, why should it be that way? And then I don't have a good answer for any of that. <laughs> so, so, But somehow, I think the networks are going to need to get more robust. And I do think identity will ultimately end up being assigned. So now once we have that arbiter of like, what is a real identity, then I think we can make serious advancement. And, and I do think that arbiter should be a set of trusted parties, not one, but a set of them. I don't exactly know who those parties should be, but they're probably some combination of hyperscalers, banks, network operators, like, you know, the people that know you and know what you're moving as assets. And, and you took it, I mean, again, this is so, so fundamental. You know, the, the physical world figured out solutions for these things, you know, things like identity, um, you know, how we relate to private entities, how we relate to governments, you know, how we transact, how we record all these things. We've figured that out in the physical world. We've been using those things for ages. And now the digital world is becoming so real and so much of our lives and our economies and our geopolitics exist in the digital world that it is straining for its own set of solutions to these same challenges yeah how about you justin i think we're all screwed (laughs) (laughs) well i mean the the thing with identity right the other side of that coin is a political dissident would like to remain anonymous right no i agree yeah i mean i'm thinking about all the women in iran right now right you know do you hear about the woman in uh, new york who apparently because she was encouraging women in iran to show photographs of themselves without their head coverings uh, that she's being targeted now by I'm not a bunch surprised. Of, not surprised. And it's yeah. I mean, sadly, you're right. I'm not surprised, but yeah. So, so this is where I get back to you. Can maybe do the greater good by hiding, 
right? And then you start to think of like a matrix-like world, which gets like a little <laughs> crazy, right? I mean, we can go. Yeah, and, and a whole other podcast episode on like what even is privacy. Oh God, that's like, now that's a really <laughs> well. I, I, these days, it's like what is security? Like you know, it's and and it's not the same as privacy, sure. and it's no. not the same as identity. No, no. But that's mm-hmm. I think there's a gold mine in those three areas. There's some intersectionality between them, but you know, between security, privacy, and identity. Within that those spaces, I think you will see a lot of fundamental shift and like massive disruption and how we think about it, how we think about ourselves with respect to it, and how technology takes advantage of all of that. Yeah, and that could be really exciting. I mean, we might actually find a way to squeeze crime out to make it harder to commit crime. Someone will figure out how to commit crime. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it'll always be minority it'll report. Always be there, but you know, maybe it'll be. Uh, yeah, I, well, you're right. It'll always be there. <laughs> You need the uh, the real futurists, the minority report. Uh, pre-crime. Pre-crime, where they just sort of pluck it out of the aether. I mean, you're already seeing you are. a lot of pre-crime stuff with uh, leveraging uh, and, and algorithms and predictive modeling. Yeah, that's true. It is interesting, though. Like a lot of the really great sci-fi, a lot of the great films, even the ones that maybe were more borderline fantasy, There, there's a lot in each one of them, little nuggets that can help point you to what you do and might not want out of like, you know, future possibilities. So you know, we could probably throw 10 more titles at this in the next five minutes and scare ourselves yeah. or excite ourselves. There's a great branch of, of futurism called design fiction, which is just that. Okay, that I don't know about. What is that? Le- so it's a ways to leverage fiction to learn how to just... Uh, it's Yeah, it's, it's the idea that science fiction actually transports us into okay, the future. Yeah. And in doing so, it, it like compelled. This is how yep. we got the metaverse. This yep. is why anybody yep. uses that word is because of Neil Stevenson and Snow Crash. Um, and that was like 92 or something, 94. Like By the way, he was at the Economist um, Impact event this last week. And that man is so smart like so brilliant and so and, cogent and in his ability to co- like focus on different yeah. things so you know, he get he got asked a question and i'm not going to repeat the question because it was really long-winded but he was talking about how you know yeah that could be something interesting that he might want to go and solve but really what he wants to solve is carbon because he's like better positioned to do that and i thought this is like a really thoughtful person spends a lot of time thinking about not only you know his artistry but you know who he is and he's so self-aware to be able to say this is what i think i should be focused on right now and he's now the co-founder of a web3 based metaverse company lamina yep lamina 1 yep no we met uh, tony i met tony parisi and um, you know, a couple of other the team members there. I think it's really exciting what they're working on, actually. Yeah, I'm sure you can't comment on it, but uh, but I, I find it fascinating. <laughs> well, Tony gave me one of my um, most memorable uh, metaverse experience, or not metaverse, VR experiences when he was at Weaver. Um, so. He was at Unity most recently, right? Before he ended up at Lamina One? I, th- I, th- I, th- yeah, I think so, yeah. I think that's yeah. memory serves. That's right. Justin, you got to meet him. He's, he's, uh, he's, Got a lot of things that are really interesting to say. And he wrote some piece, I think, in Medium like a few years ago about the seven rules of the metaverse, which is a very different take than Matthew Ball's all right. you know, description of all things yeah. metaverse. But yeah, some good stuff in there. All right. So that's homework for everyone who listens to this podcast. <laughs> Solve all the problems. Solve all the that problems. we ended up talking about for the last hour and a half. On that note, thank you, Chris. For joining us today, uh, I thought it was an incredibly multi-threaded conversation. <laughs> it was great, and and thank you for explaining things that I didn't understand before. Yes, 
obviously I, I love to get a good rant on around this stuff. So thanks for indulging me. And I always love our conversations. So thanks for having we'll, me. We'll do the next one live since you're only like an hour and a half away from me or an hour away. Yeah. Gives us yeah. an excuse to drag Justin over here. Oh yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Transpose. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up a little. 